session number 303. This message was recorded live at the 2017 Christian Heritage Family Discipleship and Homeschooling Conference in Redmond, Washington. Christian Heritage upholds the God-given responsibility of home-based discipleship and education that is parent-directed and Christ-centered to the glory of God. These messages are one of the ways that Christian Heritage equips you to biblically disciple and educate your children. For more information on family discipleship and Christian Heritage, visit ChristianHeritageOnline.org. Christian Heritage holds the copyright to this message and asks that you honor it by avoiding unauthorized duplication and distribution. Finances. Our real problem is by Scott LaPierre, session number 303. Okay, finances are a real problem. I realized when I was looking at this slide that it looks like I'm saying your real problem in finances is my family. You know, if you kind of look at the way that is. So there's my family there. It's six children God's blessed us with. Hope he blesses us with more. Our son Johnny, or our son Noah, our youngest, in that picture, he's got a a T-shirt on that says, I'm new here. So he was only a few months old. All right, I'll have some other slides for you as we move on. Let me go ahead and open us in prayer. Thank you for this time. Father, discussing finances and hopefully learning some principles to apply to our lives and this important stewardship that you have given us. And so I pray that you would bless this time and use me to speak to and hopefully challenge and encourage your people. Just give me wisdom and uh, help me remember what I've studied and prepare and give people open hearts to receive what you want to say to them, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 My wife, Katie, and I, we grew up completely differently. That's Katie right down there, if you didn't know already. And so her father is a farmer. And so as a farmer, he'd have tens of thousands of dollars coming in and out of his life, you know, monthly. And so it was really no big deal to him to, you know, throw $300 or $500 here or there toward one of his daughters or, or his son. And so <clears throat> basically, Katie sort of grew up, and she was, she's comfortable with me saying this, so don't look at her and wonder if she's going to be bothered, that she was used to getting whatever she wanted, really. And so I didn't grow up like that. I grew up, and my, my parents were very frugal. And so bef- before we got married, we were convinced we were going to have, like, the perfect marriage, never have any problems. And we never would have guessed, because I guess it didn't come up in our premarital counseling, that our biggest conflict was going to relate to finances and spending. Because to Katie, if it's like, hey, you know, I want this, and it only costs 20 or 30 bucks, and let's just get that. When you see, when we get into this message, you'll see how I feel about just throwing 20 bucks here or 30 bucks there. Um, <clears throat> it made for real problems early in our marriage. We've been a single-income family. I'm a pastor. Before that, I was a, an elementary school teacher, even when we homeschooled. This isn't a commentary on public school, but it was a good job for me to be a family man. And so that's what I did before pastoring. And we've always been single-income, and you can and you have two incomes that just don't pay a lot. I don't know how else to say it. I'm fine. We can take care of our family. But when you think of incomes that you know, don't make people rich, teachers and pastors— are those, are those occupations or to those occupations that probably come to mind. And sort of the reason I mention that is we've actually been able to be debt-free. We've been able to pay off all our debt. We did have debt, which was our home, and we're able to pay that off. And I mention that really for two reasons. First, I want to hopefully give you some encouragement that if you were to listen to me say this, and perhaps I made six figures or had some huge amount of money, and I talked to you about paying off debt, you could say, oh, well, that's you know, real easy for someone in your situation making all this money. Well, no, that hasn't been the case. We haven't made that much money. It's been more of a dis, uh, the relationship we've had to that money and how we have spent that money that has allowed us to pay off debt, and I'll share some of those principles with you. And then the second reason that 
I share this is it's always sort of reminded me of the fish and the loaves, uh, what God has done with our finances. You know, the way God can sort of take a little and make it stretch very far or, or what he did, um, you know, through Elijah with the, with the widow's oil. You know, there's just a little and he's able to make it produce and produce and provide. And, and so what you notice, there's not, there's not a whole lot left over. I mean, there was, you know, a handful of fish and loaves and there was probably some oil left over, but it's not a huge excessive amount. It's just as much as you need. And really, that's how we feel like God has, has treated us with our, with our finances. And I believe that's what God can do with our finances when we seek to honor him. He can stretch them much further than they would probably stretch otherwise. And I would also say, if we dishonor God with our finances, guess what he can do with them, even if our finances are huge? Not let them stretch very far. Not let them stretch very far. So let's discuss how we can honor the Lord with our finances. <clears throat> because aside from a few things like health issues or family issues, there are not many things in life that stress people out or cause people anxiety or keep people awake at night more than financial problems. When you ask people about their greatest regrets in life, very often they will mention something relating to finances that some purchase they made that they regret they wish they hadn't made or perhaps they'll share about how they wish they would have started saving earlier but just notice in conversations with people the number of times the most common regrets people have relate to finances poor financial decisions negatively affect families and negatively affect the body of christ think of how many men fathers and it's a great thing men should be taking care of their homes their families. But think of how many men have to work overtime, have to work extra hours, even have to work two jobs to be able to take care of their families. And we can understand the effect that that has on a family, right? For a father or husband to be gone so much. It affects the family's relationship to the body of Christ because the family cannot be as involved in the church. Potentially, the, the, the family can't give as much to the church financially or to others. And so finances, you know, when that, when that father is having to work so much, then the family isn't as likely to be involved in the body of Christ or to serve under, serve, uh, under his leadership and blessing or helping someone else. So my hope for this workshop is that we can learn financial principles from God's word that will first help prevent us from having some of that anxiety that I discussed earlier, keep us from, you know, kind of laying awake at night, stressed out over finances. Second, help us avoid unnecessary regrets that you know, hopefully after this workshop, there's less chance you'll look back some years from now filled with regret about some financial decision. And most importantly, I hope this workshop can help you serve the Lord better, um, give you the wisdom you need to manage your, your finance as well. And this brings us to the first principle I want us to consider. If you have a handout, does anyone not have a handout by chance? If you don't have a handout, raise your hand and my son Ricky will get one to your, okay, Ricky, do you have extra handouts? They're right there. Right there, there's a whole bunch. Hold your hand out, or hold your hand out. Hold your hand up, and you'll get a hand out. Hold your hand up, and my son will give you a hand out. And so on the handout lesson one, money is amoral, but our relationship to it is spiritual. Money is amoral, but our relationship to it is spiritual. And one over there, Ricky. There's a gentleman over there. Money is amoral, but our relationship to it is spiritual. So money, like many things, by itself is amoral or it is spiritually neutral. Money is not moral or immoral. Money is not good or bad, despite what some people might say. It's not, the Bible doesn't say that, you know, money is evil. It's the love of money that can be the root of many evils. But our relationship to money is what is spiritual. And therefore, it's our relationship to money that is moral or could be good, could be moral or could be bad, could be 
immoral. Our relationship to money definitely is not spiritually neutral or amoral. Dennis Rainey said, every financial decision you make is actually a spiritual decision. For many, that's a revolutionary concept. How you manage your finances is a pretty good barometer of the condition of your spiritual life. How you manage your finances is a pretty good indicator of the barometer of your spiritual life. The difficulty with money is since it can be both morally used morally or immorally, it's not really a black and white issue. And what I mean by that is if I talk about lying, stealing, murder, adultery, immediately you just say wrong, sinful, evil. It's very black and white, very cut and dry. It doesn't require a whole lot of wisdom. just requires a self-control not to engage in those sins. But with money, an amount of wisdom is required because it's not that black and white. It's not that cut and dry. For example, we're supposed to save money, but we're not supposed to hoard it or, co- or covet it. We're supposed to spend money, but we're supposed to spend money with discretion and self-control. We're supposed to make purchases, but we're not supposed to purchase trivial things or things that are really extravagant. We're to be generous in giving, but with an amount of discernment and guidance from the Holy Spirit. There's actually at least one time in Scripture that we're told not to give. We're told that we're not supposed to give to someone if that person doesn't do what? You work, yes. Yes, if that person won't work, he shouldn't eat. And so you shouldn't, Paul, Second Thessalonians 3.10, we commanded you, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Being hungry is, is a real strong motivation to get a job, right? And so one of the worst things you can do is give someone money. When someone's in that condition and they're asking for money, the best thing you could give them is a job, not money. We're to give to the Lord, but joyfully and sacrificially. And so my point is, whether it's giving, not giving, saving, not hoarding. All of these things require wisdom and balance. All these situations reveal that wisdom is necessary to manage our finances well. What I'd like to do is I'd like to encourage you to be wise with your finances by applying the biblical principle of putting off and putting on. You've probably heard that before, right? It's in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, putting off and putting on. Here's the idea. God's word doesn't just tell you to stop something. You also have to start something. You don't just put something off. You have to put something on. It's about severing, but it's also about replacing. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that you're going to put off lying, but it's not enough to just stop lying. Even the other day, a young man came up to me and he says, hey, I struggle with vulgarity. I'm saying curse words in my head that I don't want to say. Is it going to be enough for him to just say, I will no longer say curse words? No. What does he need to do? He needs to start concentrating on what he does say in response to that. Because when you put off, you've also got to put on. If you're going to put off stealing, according to Ephesians 4, if you've got a problem with theft or dishonesty, you need to put on working with your hands, put off corrupting or unwholesome talk, put on language that's edifying and gives grace. So Paul lists a number of things you put off. He lists a number of corresponding things that you're supposed to put on. But here's the thing. It is not meant as an exhaustive list. Paul is trying to give us a principle there. And the principle is when there's something you want to stop doing, you need to identify that corresponding thing you're supposed to start doing. It's a principle in God's word that we can apply to all areas of the Christian life, even our finances. And this brings us to lesson two. If you don't have a handout, raise your hand. I saw some other people come in and my son Ricky will will get you a handout or my, my wife Katie will. So raise your hand. Lesson two, or my daughter Rhea will. Someone will. Rhea, Ricky, you know, Johnny and Noah are up there. Maybe they'll get around and give you, someone will give you a handout. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So lesson two, put off debt, put on saving. Lesson two, put off debt 
and put on saving. Lesson two, put off debt and put on saving. If you need a handout, raise your hand or Ray will get one to you. All right, now I'm going to be frank with you. And if you have any problem with this whatsoever, you are welcome to send me an email or you're welcome to come talk to me at my booth about this. Debt is one of the most interesting areas of Scripture in my mind in that it's presented very negatively, but it's often embraced by Christians. Just follow me for a moment. Many things in Scripture are presented negatively, but they're not willingly or at times even joyfully embraced by Christians. Debt is one of those very unique things that's presented very negatively in Scripture, yet Christians are very comfortable embracing it. While money itself is presented amorally, that was lesson one, that money is amoral. While money itself is presented amorally, debt is definitely not presented amorally or spiritually neutral. Debt is presented negatively. It's not ambiguous. It is not unclear. In the Old Testament, we're told that debt actually takes people and makes them what? Makes you slaves. Makes you a slave. Proverbs 22, 7, the rich rules over the poor. The borrower is the slave of the lender. In the New Testament, according to Romans 13, 8, there's only one thing that we should ever owe people, and what's that? Love. Romans 13, 8. We're told not to owe any man anything other than love. Rod Rogers said, what does God have to say about the impact of debt on his people? He says, it makes you a slave to the lender. In the Old Testament world, if you could not pay your debt on time, you became the slave of the lender until you worked off your debt. In our day, if you borrow money, you become the lender's slave by giving much or most of your income back to the lender. I'll just tell you briefly, when we purchased our house in California, I had a mortgage of one hundred. I still remember $164,000. This was back in 2004. So the mortgage was $164,000. I remember looking at the number that I was going to have to pay back. Any guesses? It was over twice that. It was a lot closer to $350,000. There's a sense in which you're a slave every time that you're writing this check to the bank and it's a huge amount, you know, much more than you ended up, than you previously borrowed and it takes so much out of your paycheck each month. That's the sort of slavery that's in view here. I want to provide a little balance to this because I understand there are some situations that force people into debt. Some situations force people into debt. What are some that come to mind? Health issues, right? Then the medical bills start piling up. Could be the loss of a job, unexpectedly. Could just be the recession causes a loss of a job, no impropriety or immorality on someone's part. Loss of a job, inability to pay bills or expenses. Could be some other unforeseen accident or some other unforeseen trial that forces people to be in debt. But here's the thing I want you to notice about these situations that I just mentioned to you. They're unforeseen and they're largely accidental, right? These are not situations that individuals chose for themselves. These are situations that individuals found themselves in um, involuntarily. But let's be honest. When most people are in debt, is it because of something unwilling on their part or is it something unforeseen or accidental on their part? No, most people are in debt by choice, willingly. People have chosen to put put themselves in debt. People find themselves in debt when they had control of the situation, but they wanted something and they just didn't want to wait until they had what? The money for it. They want to wait till they have the money for it. When you're considering a purchase, I would encourage you to use debt as a litmus test. As a pastor, the most con- I never get these easy questions. Follow me for a moment. Nobody ever comes to me and says, "Hey, should I go get drunk?" 
Or, hey, should I go rob this? Or should I go be unkind to this person? I don't get questions like that, that are that black and white. And instead, I get these very difficult gray area questions. Should I take this job? Should I make this purchase? Should I move here? Obviously, because then if, they, if it was that easy, they wouldn't come to me with a question. And one of the common questions is, relates to purchases. And people want to know, should I make this purchase? Often I can't tell people. But this is what I can say people can use as a litmus test or a fleece. Has God given you, or if you put this purchase before the, law, before the Lord, will he give you the finances to make the purchase without going into debt? Here's a very simple example. Let's say you're thinking about college. You can say, Lord, if you want me to go to this university and it's this much money, then, pl- then please make sure that I get, or please provide, not make sure, then it's almost like you're telling God what to do. Please provide the grants. Please provide the financial aid I need to not go into debt while I'm going to this university. There's a woman, and you say, well, that sounds pretty odd. Well, there's a, there's a woman in my church who gave me that exact testimony as an example. That's one reason I mentioned it. She just brought it before the Lord. She did not have the financial aid, and then God provided it, and she went to, went to school as long as she received the financial aid for it. The other way that it makes a nice litmus test, although people don't often like to hear this, if God does not provide you with the finances you need to make this purchase and avoid debt, then what should you tell yourself? This probably isn't God's will for me. This is not a purchase he wants to make. Just think about it logically if you're struggling with this. Follow this logically. If Scripture warns us against debt, if Scripture presents debt so negatively, is God going to lead us to do something that's presented negatively in his word? Is God going to discourage us from doing something in his word and then lead us to do it in our practical, everyday lives? That's very hard for me to believe would be his will. Very hard for me to believe. There would have to be some terribly extenuating circumstances that would make me think it would be God's will for someone to go against his word in a decision they're facing. And if we're supposed to pay off debt, or excuse me, if we're supposed to put off debt, we'll pay it off too, then you can probably guess what we're supposed to put on. If we're supposed to put off debt, we're supposed to put on saving. As poorly as the Bible speaks of debt, it speaks equally positively of saving. Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Proverbs 21, 20. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. And so the idea is wise people are going to store up their resources or save them, and foolish people are going to squander or consume them. They basically would spend every penny they have. In Scripture, God looks at certain um, animals, and in one case, ants, and applauds certain things about them so that we have this nice picture or visual to to challenge us or encourage us. And in Scripture, ants are applauded for being hardworking, but they're also applauded for being savers. Proverbs 6, 8. The ant stores her supplies in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Proverbs thirty twenty four. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they're exceedingly wise. And here's why the ant is exceedingly wise. Ants are people not strong, yet they store their food in the summer. And so you have ants being applauded by God for their abilities to save. But here's the thing. Scripture goes beyond just commanding us to save. And this is what's great about Scripture. It tells us how to save or tells us how to accumulate wealth, and it tells us how not to save or how not to try to accumulate wealth. And this brings us to lesson three. Lesson three, put off getting rich quickly and put on obtaining money little by little. Lesson three, put off getting rich quickly and put on obtaining money little by little.
our flesh tempts us to be greedy. And so as a result of that, <clears throat> there are not many things that are more attractive than getting rich quickly. And that's why so many marketers, so many commercials, so many you know, advertising executives are instructing people to you know, make commercials or advertisements that basically promise people that they can get rich quickly. Those three words, get rich quick. We need to keep in mind that trying to obtain money quickly or trying to get rich quickly is actually forbidden by Scripture. Proverbs 28, 20, he who hastens to be rich or seeks to get rich quickly will not go unpunished. Proverbs 28, 22, a man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider the poverty that will come upon him. So God says trying to get rich quickly actually leads to poverty. And if you think about it for a moment, what do most get-rich schemes lead people into? Greater wealth? No, poverty. They waste their money. They regret them. They participate in these schemes, and then almost inevitably they'll tell you later that they wasted their money and wish they hadn't done it. The most obvious way people attempt to get rich quickly is through gambling. Gambling is a terrible stewardship of God's money. It has a very high potential for addiction. Anyone live in southwest Washington? I know the van. Okay. All right, so you guys know, recently this casino opened near us on I-5. Anyone who drove on I-5, this casino opened on Monday, you were backed up for hours by the number of people who could not wait to visit this casino on its, on its uh, opening day. And you've got all these people who are thinking about getting rich quickly or basically just throwing their money away. I mean, there's, it's, it's amazing how many people think they can go to a casino and make money. If you could go to a casino and make money, then what would happen is you would show up at the casino and there'd be a sign out front that says, casino closed because we lost all our money, right? But that's not what you see. You see they have plenty of money. They can give you plenty of alcohol to make you even more foolish with your finances. And people just go there and throw away all this money. That's one of the fastest ways people try to get rich. And interestingly, when we think of addictions, we, we might project ourselves on others usually. And I don't, I have struggles. I have weaknesses. Gambling's not one of them. So I tend not to think of other people struggling with gambling. But since becoming a pastor, I've seen there are some individuals enslaved to gambling. And it has as, it has as strong of a enslavement on these people as any other sin you can think of, whether it's drugs or pornography or bitterness, any number of things. Instead of trying to get rich quickly, God's word gives us two principles regarding the accumulation of wealth. First, wealth should be earned. God's word says money, we should work for the money we receive. Proverbs 10:4. lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent or hardworking hands bring wealth. Proverbs 14, 23, in all toil or in all hard work, there's profit, but mere talk tends to poverty. Proverbs 28, 19, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Now, I, I mentioned getting rich quick and, you know, those schemes and two popular that worthless pursuits that lead to poverty or lead to this would be um, you know, gambling and, and any, any endeavor that you think is going to promise you some amount of money very quickly. The second thing is God's word says that we should accumulate wealth over time. Proverbs 13, 11 says, wealth that's gained hastily or quickly will dwindle, but whoever gathers wealth little by little will increase it. And so this is probably referring to two things. Let me just read the second part one more time. Proverbs 13, 11, whoever gathers little by little will increase their wealth. So this is referring to working hard, not just, you know, over 20 or 30 years. What's in view here is working hard, not just month after month, week after week, but day after day, even hour after hour, stringing together all of those 
days, weeks, months of working hard and accumulating wealth for it. But I think it's also referring to interest. This verse is also referring to interest. In Scripture, is there any place that comes to mind, I'll give you a hint, where Jesus seemed like a fan of interest? You want to think of an example? In the parable of the talents, you have a man with five talents. You have a man with two talents, and then you have a man who received one talent. And the man who received one talent, he took it, he buried it in the ground, and then he returns to the Lord with that talent. And in a sense, he doesn't look very bad because he didn't steal it. He didn't lose it, any number of bad things he could have done. He actually gave back God what God had given him. And so Jesus said, Matthew 25, 27, you should have taken it, deposited my money with the bankers, and on my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So the man who received only one talent received much less than the other men. So you'd almost think, well, God will be more gracious with him. He won't have as high of expectations since he only received one. But God still expected at least some investment, even a little bit of interest on his return. The greatest way to gain interest on your money is through the stock market. And this brings up, an, at least in my opinion, this seems to be the best way. And this brings up an interesting consideration because I want to be sensitive to anyone's conscience who forbids them from using the stock market. I have, a, I have a great godly friend, a man I look up to very much, and he is convicted about using the stock market. He thinks it's a form of gambling, and so I don't try to encourage him to do it. And if your conscience forbids you even after listening to me, then I would encourage you to listen to your conscience or the Holy Spirit than to me. Um, but I would say the stock market, it can be a form of gambling if you use it that way, if you try to play it versus invest in it, right? If you're trying to play it like you play gambling, playing the stock market. But if you want to use the stock market to make money little by little or over some number of hopefully not just years, but decades, then I would not look at that as a form of gambling. With all that said, I want to give you some slides here that demonstrate the importance of making um, money over time. And I would say more importantly, demonstrate the greatest or most valuable tool you have when it comes to making money. And it's not money itself. So let me ask you this. What is the greatest tool or resource you have regarding making money? Any guesses? Uh, The decisions you make, actually, yes? You got it. You got it. It's nice to see that from a young man, too. Okay, so consider these slides, or look at this first slide. Consider these two examples. Two examples here. Example one, you have a 30-year-old, and he invests $200 per month at 7% interest, so a fairly moderate interest rate. 30 years old, investing $200 per month, 7% interest, he'll have $244,000 when he's 60 years old. Now, an individual who does the exact same thing but starts 10 years earlier decides that he's going to start at 20 instead of 30. Again, 7%. No other variables changed in this. He will end up with $525,000 at 60 years old. So starting 10 years earlier results in more than twice as much money, a difference of $281,000. Now, for this slide, again, I used a modest return of 7%. If you happen to look at the stock market over any 25-year period, even over the last 25-year period, which includes the Great Recession, the stock market has averaged close to 12%. Close to 12%. Over any 25-year period that you look at the stock market's history, pull it out, you'll see an average that's close to 12%. I'm going to show you another chart, and I want to use an interest rate of 12%, okay, for this second chart. All right. So two people. Let's say person A starts at 19 years old. And at 19 years old, 
this person starts investing $2,000 per year, and if the person gets 12%, then at the end of the year, the person would have $2,240, right? And let's say this person does that. Person A does this. 2,000 years invested each year until he hits 26. And I chose 2,000 because 2,000 is not really that difficult of an investment to make. You know, if you're just saving up about $120, $130 per month, uh, you can do this. So, but then the person hits 26, and for whatever reason, I'm not investing anymore. Decides that he's not going to invest any more money. But when he hits 65, if that money continued to gain 12%, he would have invested $16,000 total. Can you see that down there? Oh, you can't see it. Okay, under the column where it says invested, he invested $2,000 for eight years. $2,000 times eight years is $16,000. So person A invested only $16,000 and ended up with almost $2.3 million. Okay, now person B. Person B decides he's going to start investing at 27 years of age. So he starts one year after person B or person A stopped. So person B stops one year after at 27, the year that person A stopped at 26. Person B starts investing $2,000 per year, and person B does this from 27 all, to 65, all the way to 65 years of age. So person B, I'm sorry you can't see here, but person B invested $78,000. So just to make it clear, person A invested $16,000, person B invested $78,000, and person B ends up with $1.5 million. So even though person B invested, what is that, three, four? See, I'm not even that good at math. Person B invests three, four times more money than person A and ends up with that much less money, $1.5 million versus two point three. So you get, you recognize here, that the really important asset or resource you have on your side is time. Do we have anyone who's 19, 19 or younger here, by a show of hands? You know, 19 years or younger? Okay, all of you guys should thank me. I just showed you how to be millionaires, right? <laughs> okay, we'll talk at the end about what you should do if you actually ended up becoming a millionaire, and it's definitely not wasting your money on yourself. Uh, it's how you can use it for the Lord. So keep that in mind. This isn't about trying to make you into millionaires. But the problem for you young people who raised your hand is you have a, a difficult situation. It's probably the best way I would say it right now. And, and for two reasons. And this is what the first reason. You probably, I'm suspecting, have very few financial obligations. Is that correct? I f- appreciate your head nodding there. Okay, so you guys, thank you. I'm going to use you because you've been very affirming and answering me. Okay, so you have very few financial obligations. So because of that, you don't feel that weight of responsibility. You know, you don't feel pressured to be wise or to be frugal with your money. And second, since you're young, you also think you have a whole bunch of what? You think you have a whole bunch of time. You think you have a whole bunch of time. And so because of that, you'll put off saving. You'll put off investing. And then you'll decide you're going to get really serious about saving or investing when you're what? What do you think? 30, 30 yeah, 30, 40, really old or something like that, right? That's what you think when you're that age. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, what am I now? I just turned 24 last week, so... That was just a joke. I thought you guys would laugh. No, just I'm getting closer to 40 here. So anyway, but the thing is, the problem is you decide you're going to get serious about saving or investing when you're 40, 50, or worse. Some people get serious about it when they're 60, and you've lost the main thing you need to make money, and that's time. And you can't go back and undo it, and that's why one of people's biggest regrets associated with finances is, I wish I would have started earlier. I wish I would have started earlier. So do yourself a favor. Start saving now, whether you're you know, 19, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, whatever, start as early as you can. And I'll add, if, you're, if you have parents, any of you who raised your hand, if you have parents and your parents don't let you waste your money, they don't let you throw your money away, you want to go buy stuff and they tell you no, do you know what you should say to your parents? 
thank you. That's what you should be saying. You should be saying thank you very much for controlling me and teaching me a lesson that I probably am having trouble appreciating right at this moment, but will definitely appreciate when I'm older. So thank you very much. Speaking of saving, this brings us to the, la- to the next lesson, lesson four. We develop the habit of saving or wasting money, lesson four. We develop the habit of saving or wasting money. Okay, saving money, I want you to understand, try to, try to think of it this way. Saving money and wasting money are both very habit-forming. They're both very habit-forming. And notice the word or in the lesson. I put that word there on purpose. I want you to understand you cannot do both of these at the same time. And I mention this because I've met people who think they do both of these at the same time. In fact, one of the ways or one of the most common ways people justify wasting money is by pointing out to you what? How much they saved on that purchase. Or they'll tell you, oh, they'll point out how much they saved up to this wasteful purchase. And that's one of the most common ways that people justify wasting money is by discussing how much they think they're saving. But just understand, saving money, if you think you can save money, waste money at the same time, that's like a plane flying in two different directions. It just doesn't happen. You can't do it. All you've done, if you think you're saving money at the same time you're wasting money, is you've just found a way to justify wasting money by pointing out the money you've saved on this purchase. Let me get you to imagine some people. Imagine people who are very wasteful. Imagine people who have lots of debt. But imagine they become very convicted and they decide that they're going to put off debt. They're thinking of that principle of putting off, putting on, put off debt, put on savings. And here's what can happen as their habit of wasting money becomes a habit of saving money. They can actually start to enjoy watching the money in their retirement account increase. Or they can start to enjoy maxing their retirement account each year. They can look forward to maxing it each year. They can start enjoying watching the loan on their car decrease the balance on their credit cards decrease or get paid off. They can start getting excited about watching the mortgage on their house decrease or paying their house off. They can get excited about paying off all the debt they have. Dave Ramsey compares it, he calls it the debt snowball, if any, where it picks up some momentum and then you're excited about the money that you're saving. And what's really fascinating, this is when you know you've really moved from the habit of wasting money to saving money. You know it's happened when purchases actually start to discourage you. Okay? You used to make purchases, and how did you feel? Thrilled, excited, happiness, joy. And now those same purchases are like frustrating. Then you know you've hit it. You finally made that 180 here, that reversal in your life. Instead of being excited about wasting money, you're excited about saving money. The way, the way you used to shop and waste money were previously attractive, and now saving and paying off debt can be equally attractive. The next lesson, lesson five. Most people have a spending problem versus an income problem. Most people have a spending problem versus an income problem. And I put the word most there, and it's important because I do not want to seem at all insensitive to people who actually do have an income problem, legitimately. There are definitely people who are wise with their finances, have worked very hard, have been saving, and they really do have an income problem. They're really struggling to get by, and I do not want to seem at all insensitive to those individuals. But what we're talking about here is we're talking about people not in that situation. We're talking about people who have an actual, inc- uh, an actual spending problem. And the title of the message is, Our Real Problem Is, our real pro- Finances Are Real Problem, and this is Our Real Problem. A real problem is a spending problem. 
I think it's very important to understand the difference between a spending problem and an income problem, because just follow me for a moment. If you have a spending problem, but you think you have an income problem, do you see the problems that will develop as a result of that? You will be constantly blaming the wrong thing. You will be blaming your income when you should actually be blaming what? Take the finger and go like this, go. Right? You'll be blaming your income when you should be blaming yourself. You're blaming your income when you should be blaming your choices and decisions. Um, You will make excuses. You will complain about your lack of income. You will justify all all of your purchases, and you'll never fix the real problem. You'll make excuses. You might even get upset with people who rebuke you or challenge you or talk to you about these purchases. And you'll just, and you'll get, you'll flare up your flesh and, oh, well, you don't know this and you don't know that. And what about this and what about that? Because you're so convinced that what you really have is an income problem. We live in the wealthiest nation in the world. I never, before becoming a pastor and f- being frequented by individuals coming to the church asking for money, yeah, and you can become cynical as a pastor very quickly because I don't know the percent. I would say it's probably literally close to 95% of the people who come to the church asking for money are healthy. They could work. They, they, have every, they could walk down the street and get a job at places that are hiring, but they would rather just go wherever they can to get, to get money handed to them like this. Well, here's one of the reasons I'm telling you this. They're in situations that to them, are, or maybe we would even look and consider them to be poor, and even these individuals that we might look and think are approaching poverty or are in poverty still have a number of commodities or, or items that are like luxuries in other countries. What am I talking about? They'll have what? They'll have cell phones. They'll have vehicles. They'll have internet. They'll have any number of things. I mean, and that's like the poverty level in our nation. Multiple computers, Most people have more than enough money if they will control their spending. Most people could live comfortably on a much smaller income if they would stop wasting their money. So let's talk about how we waste our money. And this brings us to Lesson 5, Part 1 on your your handout. Lesson 5, Part 1. Most people have a spending problem versus an income problem resulting from Part 1, small purchases that add up. Small purchases that add up. Sometimes people struggle because of one or two large purchases they've made. I have met people, just one or two bad purchases. But most people are struggling because of lots of small purchases that have characterized their lives. Just a pattern of small purchases that have gotten them in trouble financially. There's two reasons that this takes place. First, can you think of how much easier it is to justify small purchases? You can just turn around and say, what? well, it's only what? It's only five bucks. Uh, it's only 10 bucks. It's only 20 bucks. It's only 40 bucks. So it's very easy to justify, whereas a purchase of like twenty or $30,000 or $100,000, if it's a home you shouldn't buy or a vehicle you shouldn't buy, you're dealing with thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. But it's so easy to justify the five, 10, 10 20, 30, $40 you're throwing away regularly, maybe daily, without considering the impact over the years. While most people recognize the terrible decision it is to waste money on something costing thousands of dollars, it requires a lot more wisdom to be able to look at your daily life and say, I have been doing this for years. Imagine the thousands of dollars that it's added up to that I've wasted. And as a result, they don't think about these small purchases and how it has dramatically impacted their families or or lives over these decades of behaving like that. My suspicion is most of us would be really surprised if we actually knew how much money we wasted on small purchases 
that we actually thought had no real effect on us. We'd be surprised if we consider how much money it was when we really thought all those purchases had no real effect on our finances or our families or our lives in general. The second reason we easily waste money on small purchases is this. They just don't look bad. They're not immoral or evil. We're not purchasing things that in and of themselves are bad or someone would look and say, you know, I can't believe you bought that. Most of them are small purchases that can look very reasonable. But the problem is they still add up. It's amazing how often people who are struggling financially and have thousands of dollars in debt will eat out. It's amazing how often people who are struggling financially or have thousands of dollars in debt will go to the movies, go to Starbucks. Now, here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you, and I'm not going to tell people they can't go to dinner, they can't go to coffee, they can't go to the movies, but I will say this. If you don't have the money to do those things, then you shouldn't do them. And if you have thousands of dollars in debt, then those are things that you should not be doing. Then you, don't have the, you do not have the liberty before the Lord to be doing those things. And here's what you really shouldn't do. You shouldn't make lots of those really small purchases and get yourself in a whole bunch of financial trouble and then turn around and tell people who talk to you about it that you really don't have a spending problem, you have an income problem, right? Don't make all those purchases and then turn around when you're confronted and say, oh, no, no, it's not my spending problem. It's really my income problem. If I just made more money, I wouldn't be in this situation. The reality is most people who get themselves in trouble financially, if they actually did have a greater income or make more money, then guess what? They'd still be in the same situation. They just would have wasted that extra money they had to get there. They wouldn't be in a better situation if they had more income. Let me give you an example. There's a guy named Joe. Is anyone here named Joe? By chance, I won't use that name. Okay, so let's say there's a guy named Joe. And Joe is convinced that he has an income problem. If you talk to him about it, that's what he's going to blame it on. On Joe's way to work, each morning, he stops at Starbucks. And Starbucks should really be called what? Five bucks, right? Okay. (laughs) And so when you talk to Joe about these daily purchases that he makes, what's he going to say to you? Hey, it's only five bucks. If Joe does this for five years, his $5 habit is going to cost him and his family close to $7,000. That's just his coffee habit. Imagine adding in the number of times, generally people who are excessive um, in one area will be excessive in other areas. The person who's willing to waste money five bucks per day on coffee is willing to take his family out to the movies some number of times, take his family out to eat some. So here's my point. That's just coffee, $6,700 approximately going to coffee. Now add in the amount of money going to eating out, small purchases, all the other wasteful expenditures, and you're looking at tens of thousands of dollars that Joe probably throws away. It really adds up. And very sadly, if Joe and his wife are struggling financially and you talk to them about that and try to give them some counseling, what's Joe going to say? I got this income problem. I got this income problem. I just don't make enough money. If I only made a little bit more, more money. They've done studies and they've seen this trend where almost everyone who is asked will say if they just made twice as much more. So the person who makes 50000 says if I just made 100000 But the person who makes 100000 says if I just made 200000 person who makes 250000 says if I just made 500000 We always think if we just had twice as much as what we have, we wouldn't have these issues. The next cause of people's spending problems... On your handouts, less than five, most people have a spending problem versus an income problem, resulting from part two, impatience. Impatience. Let me share a familiar account from Scripture that illustrates this. Take your minds back to Esau, okay? And I hope you can connect the dots here pretty quickly and see how Esau is a great picture of this. 
He comes home from the field. He's tired and hungry. He asks his brother for some stew, and Jacob says, I'll give you some of my stew if you give me your birthright. Jacob's request was actually terribly outrageous. We lose some of the significance of how outrageous it really was, but to ask his brother for his birthright, I mean, that's why you don't read about that happening anyplace else in Scripture, because Jacob was the only person conniving enough to make that sort of request of his brother. But here's the thing. The only thing that was more outrageous than Jacob's request was what? Esau's answer, that he actually was willing to give it to him. And so you could say this, it didn't matter to Esau what it cost him to have the stew because he was so impatient. He wanted the stew, and the only thing that mattered at that moment was getting that stew. Now, he knew. He, he, was not a, he looked foolish at this moment, but he was not that foolish of a man. I mean, if you talked to him about it and said, hey, Esau, what's, what's better here, stew or your birthright? He would have said his birthright, but in that moment, his impatience, and he just wanted what he wanted. Let me share one verse with you that reveals how Esau felt about this purchase later. Genesis 27, 34 When Esau heard the words of his father, that his father had no blessing for him, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And here's what's interesting about that. That is a grown man. I mean, picture a grown man sobbing like that. We're not talking about a baby. We're not talking about some young boy or some young girl. You're talking about a grown man who is sobbing like this in front of his father because of the regret he feels about this purchase or this choice that he made. It's a very sad picture, but in a sense, Esau can make a great picture of us. He was impatient and impulsive. We can be impatient and impulsive. The regret he experienced can make a great or perfect picture of the regret we experience when we make bad purchases. He wanted to go back and he wanted to undo what he did. We want to go back and we want to undo some of the purchases we've made. Philippians 3.19, it talks about people whose God is their stomach. And even though Paul didn't mention Esau there. My suspicion is when when Paul's talking about people whose God is their stomach, who who probably comes to mind? You know, (laughs) (laughs) maybe your husband and second, probably Esau, right? And so what what Paul meant with this was he's referring to people who are controlled by whatever they want at that moment, whatever they want in that moment. That is their controlling appetite. They will not wait. They only think about the immediate desire they have. It's true of Esau. It can be true of us. Consider this Proverbs, 20, Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but the plans of everyone who's hasty surely lead to poverty. So you've got the diligent or hardworking. They lead, they res, it results in plenty for them. But those who are hasty or impatient, they come to surely to poverty. Now, if we're honest, there's probably four words that all of us have said at different times that have caused us to make bad purchases we regret. And what are those four words? I want it now, right? I want it now. Those four words have gotten us, gotten lots of us in trouble. I'll just briefly, I don't want to pry too much into your, into your homes, um, but I'll share what we generally do in our home is when there's something we want to purchase or we're convinced we need it, we are always going to wait at least two weeks and if you have a real problem with spending, you might even make it four weeks. And one of, the, one of the really great benefits of doing this is if you wait those two weeks, if you, and I'm not saying you can't make the purchase, but here's the thing. If you still decide to make that purchase after two or four weeks, consider the likelihood that you're going to appreciate that purchase in the future and not look back on it with regret, right? But the other reason I tell you to wait two to four weeks 
is once you get to the two-week mark, guess what you're probably going to say a lot of the time? I'm really glad I didn't buy this two weeks ago. And you won't have that regret. You would not believe how many times if people will, because here's the thing, often when people regret a purchase that they made, how long do they have to wait before they regret it? It's usually within the first two weeks that they regret it. If they just would have waited that two weeks, four weeks, or maybe even one week, they could have saved themselves all of that regret if they just would have been patient. So that's one encouragement I would give you. If you're thinking about some purchase, hold off at least two to four weeks before making it. Has anyone heard of the Stanford marshmallow experiment before by a show of hands? Okay, great. It was a series of studies that was conducted on children at Stanford University, and these kids were given this marshmallow. And they're, being, and they're, you know, being televised, so you can actually go on the internet, and, or they're being recorded, and you can look at some of the old footage of this experiment when it, when it took place, and these kids are kind of sitting at this table, and some, someone comes in and says, I'm, I'll give you this marshmallow right now, and you can eat it right now, or you can wait, and I'll come back in 15 minutes, and I'll give you a second one. And so, obviously, all the kids in this experiment fell into one or two categories, right? Those who ate the marshmallow right at that moment, or those who waited the 15 minutes, for the, for the interviewer to come back and give them a second marshmallow. And if you ever watch the videos, it's pretty entertaining because some of the kids, I mean, they're sitting there and you're like watching how much self-control it's taking. They're like licking their lips. You're almost like pulling for them to be able to do it. You know, you want to yell at, yell at your computer screen and say, hold off a little longer, you know, you can do it. You know, look at these kids and, some, and they sit there and maybe there's like two minutes, three minutes, and all of a sudden they take it and they eat it, you know? But occasionally you have some kids that make it the whole 15 minutes, the guy comes back and gives them the second marshmallow. Here's the reason I'm telling you this. They followed these children over the coming years or decades of their lives and tracked their progress or wanted to see how they did in life in general. And I'll give you a quote here. The researchers found that the children who waited tended to have, and I'm quoting, better life outcomes as measured by SAT scores, educational attainment, body mass index, and other life measures. Now, I wish they would have mentioned how much better those kids who waited did better financially, but maybe that's not something that they looked at, or maybe they just assumed that in their success, you assume they did well, did better financially. I know this is a secular study, but what's fascinating to me about secular studies, one of the reasons I mention secular studies in my church isn't because we're fans of the world, or we like the world, or we like what the world does, but because it's always fascinating to me, or, or gives us a higher regard for the word, when we see that the secular world has invested millions of dollars into some study just to determine what God's Word has been saying, you know, for some number of, not just centuries, but millennia, right? You know, and if you're looking and you're like, is that where my tax dollars are going just to tell some study, multi-billion dollar study, just to tell me something I could have pointed it out to you in this proverb right here, you know? Okay, the last cause of our spending problems. Last cause of our spending problems. Lesson five. Most people have a spending problem versus an income problem from part three, self-entitlement. From part three, self-entitlement. I'll briefly share two Old Testament stories and then discuss the application. When the devil tempted Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, 4, the devil said, you will not surely die. God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. Basically, this is what the devil was saying. God doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know as much as him. He doesn't want you to be happy. He's always telling you what not to do. But you should be like God. You deserve to be like God. You deserve to know as much as him. You deserve to do what you want to do. So simply put, the devil is making Eve feel how? 
Come on, take a look at the lesson. It's not a trick question. Entitled, right? The devil is just making Eve feel entitled. The second account from the Old Testament you can consider. David had a son named Amnon. Amnon lusted after his half-sister Tamar, and he didn't control his thoughts. And then this friend of his comes along, and Amnon's just set up to be given this plan. This, this young man, Jonadab, comes along and tells Amnon, he says, hey, you're the king's son. Why are you the king's son becoming thinner day after day, making yourself sick about this girl? You should have her if you want her. And then he gives him this plan. Jonadab gives Amnon this plan so that he can have Tamar. Now, here's the thing. What did Jonadab basically do with Amnon? He made him feel what? Entitled. You're the king's son. If this is what you want, you should have this. What's the application for us? We regularly will feel tempted to be, or tempted to entitlement too. Often it can be close friends like Jonadab with Amnon, or it can be family members, family members who mean well, but in their love and concern for us and difficulty seeing us objectively, they can give us some of the worst advice. Because you can have family members, family members who say what to you? You deserve this. You should have this. Go ahead and treat yourself. And if it's not a family member or a friend that does this, then it can be our own flesh. Our sinful nature making us feel entitled. Our pride or our flesh have no problem telling us, you have earned this. You deserve this. So-and-so has this. You should have this too. So we've got to be on guard against telling ourselves these kinds of things. I have met many people who have felt entitled to buy things when they did not have the money. You would not believe how many people are struggling financially, but they purchase things and they defend themselves by saying something like this. I'm just treating myself. I deserve this. I am rewarding myself. You don't know what my week looked like. You don't know what I've been through either with my kids or in the workplace. I've got to treat myself so I can just stay sane. This is all what? These are the things people say when they're what? Entitled. If you think about it, what have these people really earned, though, if they've already got some amount of debt? What they've earned, they have not earned something good for themselves. They've earned themselves a worse financial situation. They've earned themselves some amount of slavery to debt. Also, they've often earned themselves some amount of regret as they look back later on that decision and wish that they could undo it. So there's a lot of money that's wasted under the sin of self-entitlement. There are a lot of people who are in debt, hardly have any money saved, but they're wasting the money they have, putting themselves and their families in worse financial situations because they feel entitled to do so. Let me conclude by making one final point. We talked a lot about money, and this is very important. I haven't discussed what to do with this money, and this could be a whole sermon just on giving, but I'll make it very concise here, and hopefully if it's the last thing you hear, it'll be, the, it'll be something you'll remember pretty easily. If you receive a whole bunch of money or God gives you an amount of wealth that you accumulate and you are not generous or you're not giving with it, you're like the guy that Jesus talked about in the parable who had really been blessed, had a whole bunch of crops. And what did that guy say? I'm going to take some of what I've been given. I'm going to give it away. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to share. What did he say? I have all these crops. I'll pull down my barns. I'll build greater ones. There I'll store all my crops, all my goods. If you read that parable, it's short. It's probably like 20 times that guy says, I or my, or me. So all he wanted to do with all that God, and here's the other thing. When there's a good crop, who's truly responsible for a good crop? It is not the farmer. Because there have been plenty of farmers who have prepared the fields, worked very hard, and did not get a good crop. So this guy really should have been thankful for God, should have been a better steward. And what would have been the best way for him to be a good steward? 
was by being generous or giving. He kept everything for himself. So Jesus said that he was a fool because despite all the treasure he had, he was not rich what, in what way? He was rich earthly, physically, financially, but he was not rich toward God is what Jesus said. So if you want to be rich toward God, you've got to be giving. You've got to be generous with the wealth that God allows you to communi- uh, accumulate. Excuse me. All right, with that said, any questions? How much time do I have? Is it like two minutes or none? Two minutes, okay. One, yes. A lesson one. Um, money, money is amoral, but our relationship to it is spiritual. Money is amoral, but our relationship to money is spiritual. And another question, that was way faster than I thought. I got, I might get another one here. Yes, sir. <laughs> our real problem is spending. Our real problem is spending. And then I gave you three ways that we spend the wrong way. Yes, our real problem is spending, not income. Not in this country. You go to some other country and they have income problems. But here, most people don't have income problems. We at Christian Heritage Home Educators of Washington pray that this message has been a blessing to you. For more encouragement and support in the thick of your family discipleship and homeschooling journey, please visit our online store where you'll find hundreds of other inspiring yet practical messages on parenting, homeschooling, entrepreneurship, and much more. Go to ChristianHeritageOnline.org.